Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to you who are joining us on site and those who are joining us online this morning. This is week two of our new series that Zach and Andrew are referring to as we're talking about experiencing new life with Jesus. And we're talking about how there's different ways that we can define this new white life. And by helping us all to define it, I'm hoping that that will not just give us more information, but also give us the ability to know what to have eyes that are open to see and to experience when we talk about new life with Jesus. If you're with us last week, you know, we kick off the series by explaining that really at the core of all new life is our relationship with Christ. And when we talk about new life in that context, we're not speaking about just a one-time event that happens in a person's life, but how there are daily opportunities to experience the depth of a relationship with Christ, these daily opportunities to experience new life with Jesus. And so today we want to build upon that, and with it being Valentine's Day weekend, I want to talk to you today about how it is possible for us to experience new life with Jesus being experienced through our relationships with others. As Ephesians 5 verse 2 says, walk in love with each other just as Christ loved us. And you see, I'm hoping that one of the things we'll experience today is that our relationships with one another are really an extension of our relationships with Christ. Our relationships with one another are extension of the relationship we have with Christ and is an area of opportunity to experience that new life that we have. Does that make sense? Good, because we're just getting going, so I hope we're tracking already. <laughs> Perfect. And this is a very important lesson for us, and the reason is this. I think we would all agree. I, I don't think we're, we're going to be in disagreement with this, is that for better or worse, our relationships have an extremely powerful impact upon our lives, upon who we are as people. Think of it, for example, if, if we or our kids were to go to school, that becomes a big part of our self-identity. And it fuels life. When it goes well, it fuels life. And it gives this sense of belonging and joy and activity. But we all know as well, maybe from personal experience or from stories, that if a child has a difficult time in school, maybe, maybe if they were bullied, it drains life from them. It can lead to more serious challenges, too, with depression and withdrawal, and not just at school, in all areas of life. We know this in marriage as well, don't we? We know that marriage has this incredible power to make you feel like you're living on cloud nine. I don't know why it's not cloud ten, but they say it's cloud nine is what you live upon. And we know that on cloud nine, it is bliss. It is awesome to be there. But what else do we know? We know marriages also have the power, maybe one day to be on cloud nine, but another day somewhere else. One day we know that somebody had a, a good thriving marriage, but then something happened and it went down and they're not living on cloud nine anymore. They're living more in like H-E double hockey sticks down, you know, in a different situation. We know this in church context as well. When church goes well, it has the support the encouragement, this incredible environment in which to grow in relationship with God and with other people. But what else do we know? We know the other side is true too, that, that when there's division, when there's conflict, that it doesn't just injure a person's relationship with other people in the body of Christ. It actually has the power to injure our relationship with God as well because of our experience with his people. So I think it's true, and it's an important lesson for us to be aware of, is that for better or worse, our relationships are extremely powerful on how they impact us. And not only do I want to talk about this today because it's Valentine's Day weekend, but also I felt that it was timely, because I, I don't know about you, but I absolutely feel that there is this ramping up 
socially, politically, on, on social media, of this increased strain, this, this increased division that seems to be existing in our culture these days. And now I'm not going to pretend to have a solution to all of that in the next 30 minutes. I would be a much wealthier and more famous man if I could solve all those things in 30 minutes, believe me. But I do want to offer you this. I want to offer you some practical biblical insights related to relationships that can help you to overcome patterns that can steal life from us so that you can experience new life and honor God in our relationships. Does that sound worthwhile? Absolutely. Because here's the truth. God created us to live in community. He created us to live in the context of relationship, therefore. And our relationships have the power to either drain life from us or to fuel life in us. Now, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And I personally look forward to Valentine's Day every year because I like to think of myself as a little bit of a romantic. Okay? Nadine may or may not agree with that. depends upon the year. But here's something that I knew, is that we always go do something for Valentine's Day. And it's, it's not always something fancy, but here's something else I know. And there's this kind of this unwritten, unspoken rule about Valentine's Day. Number one, I have to plan it. It sometimes involves dinner, sometimes a movie, a show, or concert. There always needs to be a gift and a card, but do not dare show up with flowers. That's that's just the way it works in our family. Now, two years ago, we decided to kind of raise the bar on Valentine's Day. And, and this kind of wrecked it for kind of getting over that bar for every future Valentine's Day. Because we decided on our 25th wedding anniversary year, we are going to go on a, a love boat cruise and renew our vows. And so there's a, a picture of, of us doing that a couple years ago. But here's something else that I like to do on Valentine's Day and other days as well, but during these moments, these opportunities that also Nadine is not as fond of, is that I like to take selfies. Now, you may not know that about me, but my nickname could be Selfie Stick Grandpa. I I love selfies. On on vacays and special days, I've got the selfies going because I want to capture that. Now, you may be surprised by that because you may also know this about me, is that I don't really do a whole lot on social media. And you think, well, why would you have all these selfies and not post them on social media? Well, the answer is this. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to post a selfie on social media. Because you think about it, you have to get it just right. And so you have to take the proper shot, and then you have to check it. And if it's not good, you have to take it again and, and change the angle. Maybe change the pose a little bit. Change the expression. Do we do a high shot or do we do a low shot? Do we go from the left side or do we go from the right side? Do we do serious face? Do we do duck face? Do, do we do blue steel? Which, which one are we going to do? And then after you find the perfect picture, which takes multiple shots, you then have to apply filters and you have to put edits onto it. All of this to share one photo is just too much work. Research has been done into this. And did you know that 70% of the selfies that you find online are basically one out of about 10 shots that were taken? And most of them had about seven minutes worth of editing and filters applied before they hit post. It's a lot of work. All because somebody took a picture and there was some aspect of the individual or the situation that was captured in that picture that they felt the need to cover up. Now, not only is that a lot of work, but when I think about all the effort that goes into it and the purpose behind it, it also makes me think it doesn't really convey a sense of authenticity, does it? Authenticity of the person or the situation. See, just like with these selfies. There are aspects of ourselves that 
sometimes appear in pictures that don't make for good selfies, but sometimes aspects of our own attitudes and behaviors that don't fuel life in our relationships. But all too often, when we identify those areas that are a little rough in our lives, rather than deal with them, we apply a filter. We, we just kind of cover them up and then move on. And so I want to suggest to you that the first thing that we can do to help us have relationships that are fueled with new life is to take a relational selfie. What do I mean by that? I mean, I mean, take this introspective look, this to identify anything that could be draining life out of your relationships. Now, as I say that, I'm not suggesting that you are the sole reason for all the problems in all of your relationships. Because the reality, we know this is true, for better or for worse, all of us are inter, you know, related and, and affect how those sorts of things go. But I am suggesting this, is that you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to take the new life that exists within your life within Jesus, to allow it to shape you into the image of Christ. And then once, <coughs> excuse me, and then when you allow it to happen in your life, one place that you can have an immediate impact is in your relationships, as we allow that to flow not just in us, but through us into others. And as we look at the word, as we, as we look at the word, we see that this is actually very similar to what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 3. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, he's reminding the church that they have new life in Jesus Christ. That because they are in Christ, that there are a whole bunch of new things that are happening in them and through them. A whole bunch of things that are impacting the way that they live and the way that they engage with others. And then when we get to verse 8, he says this, because of this new life, he says, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Why? Because you have taken off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of the creator. See, Paul is basically giving us this called introspection. This call to identify behaviors and attitudes that may exist within us that drain life from us. Not just because they're unhealthy for our relationships, but more specifically in the context of the passage, because those things are inconsistent with the new life that we have in Christ. You see, our relationships with others, as I mentioned a moment ago, are an extension of the life we have with Christ. And so this isn't just a call to identify these areas of challenge and then apply a filter over top of it or to just kind of cover it and edit it a little bit. Paul says, what is the language he uses in here? He says, rid yourselves of these things. Literally, the, the word that he's using here is talking about taking off. He's talking about take these things off like you would take off dirty clothes. Why? Because when you come into contact with people, you don't want them to also be infected or have a problem with the dirty clothes that you're wearing. Take them off so that your encounters with people are not polluted by the dirty clothes that we wear. Because since crisis changes inside, it stands to reason that there would be differences that appear outside. And Paul describes these differences, these clothes that we can put on instead, when he continues in verse 12, where he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, as those who are holy and those who are dearly loved, rather clothe yourselves. When you've taken off the dirty clothes, put on other clothes, things like compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has agreements against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together 
in perfect unity. Now, when I consider this passage, these, this idea of taking off and, and putting on, when I read about this, it, it sort of gives me this idea, this image of like a superhero. You know, most superheroes have like their secret identity, right? Uh, one that comes to mind in particular, obviously, would be like Superman or Superwoman, right? Where they have two identities that they live in the world. And they have to choose which one they're going to allow the world to experience. Now, on one hand, they have this amazing, these amazing powers. This ability to like, like fly or, I guess not technically flying, it's like leaping over tall buildings, but it looks like flying. So flying in, in, in incredible strength. X-ray vision, being bulletproof, able to regenerate from the sun, all these amazing powers. It gives Superman the ability to, to save people from burning buildings, to stop them from having plane crashes. And, and on Valentine's Day, oh my word, he can take Lois Lane on a moonlight fly through the city. Amazing, right? Everyone loves that guy. But what does he do? He chooses to walk around in a cheap suit, with a goofy hairdo, Coke bottle glasses, acting awkward all the time. That's not his true identity. And I get it. He has to hide his true identity and keep it a secret. But why would we? You see, through our new life with Christ, we have these, we can recall, kind of consider powers to make a difference in other people's lives too. We have these amazing superpowers of compassion. So we can show love and concern when somebody is hurting and when things are failing in their lives. We have this power of kindness so we can treat all people at all times well. We have the power of humility. We can extend grace to others just as God has extended grace to us. We have, we have the power of gentleness so that we can use a gentle word from our changed heart to change another's heart. The power of patience, Paul talks about here where we can listen to somebody patiently. We can give them time and space they need to heal from the wounds that they've picked up in this world. Why would I refer to these as superpowers? Well, because just as Superman's powers are not common on this planet, so too these virtues are utterly countercultural to what the world experiences and expects. They're supernatural. And these are in keeping with our true identity if we are living in Christ. These are in keeping with our true identity that can fuel new life in our relationships with others. Because see, God created us for life in community. And our relationships have the power to either drain life from us or to fuel life in us. And these virtues have life-giving power in us and through us. Amen? Amen. Now, it's one thing for us to possess these virtues. It's one thing for us to believe, to read in Scripture and believe that they exist within us. But it's a whole other thing to actually apply them to life, to actually live them out in life. And, and, and I want to offer you one more thing today in, in relation to this. It's, it's sort of a practical tool on how you can do that, what that would look like to have these things lived out in our lives. And, and it's built upon probably one of the most helpful, practical verses that you'll find in the whole Bible when it comes to our interpersonal relationships. And it's a verse that we find in James 1, verse 19 through 20, where James says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, quite often, if you're all like me, 
When we find ourselves in difficulties, we find ourselves in conflicts, what's our primary concern? Quite often, it's, our primary concern is that we want to be heard. We want to be validated in what we're saying and what we're feeling. That's very common within our, within our human nature. Ever find yourself in an argument, and then you talk, and then you stop, and the other person talks, and, and, and what do you do? You listen very intently and very carefully to what the other person has to say, don't you? No, we don't. We talk, and then they talk, and while they talk, we think about what we're going to say next, so that when their mouths stop moving, that's when the good comebacks come out. Does that, does that sound just me? Am I a bad pastor? No? Okay. I think it's kind of a human thing, right? But this is, this is where the good comebacks come from, but this is not where fuel for our relationships tend to come from, right? And, and so what James is saying here is that we need to slow that down. We need to slow that down, and we need to listen. We need to, to put our powers, our superpowers to work, things like, like kindness and humility and patience, so we can control our responses. Because if we can control our responses, it will then produce the outcomes. It will then produce the righteousness that is in keeping with the new life that we have, with the things that God desires within us. And I want to say really, really practical with this and actually give you a tool, give you a model on how you can actually do this. Because it's one thing to say, yes, I'm, I am going to listen more and I'm going to speak less. But, but nobody ever told you how to do that. And so I want to offer you a tool that you could potentially use that would actually make that a reality in your life. And it's a tool referred to as the cube. And the cube is basically a series of introspective questions that helps you to take that selfie in the moment so that you can respond well. And as I go through this, I'm going to go through it fairly quickly for us. And then I want to point us to a passage of Scripture. We can actually see this being applied. But as I go through these introspective questions, it might be helpful for you to even think of a conflict that you had in, in, in your life in the past. Or maybe, maybe you're in the middle of one right now. And you can just do like a live example. We don't need to do like a counseling thing right here right now. Uh, but, you know, in, in your own mind or introspective, in, inside voices, not outside voices, right? Especially if the person you're sitting beside is one you have a conflict with, because that would just get really awkward. Because I had to pause the service and then like, do counseling right here and we'd have an audience. So inside voices, right? As you think about a conflict that you could apply to this. And as I walk through it, consider, if you were to apply the cube to that past or present situation, what could have been different? Or yet, how even still could you resolve some of those things? So, with that situation in mind, here's the first question. It's very simple. What did you observe? This is just the facts. Often, what you heard and what you saw in the midst that led to this conflict. I'll give you a really quick example. This past Thursday, at lunchtime, I went to the subway just over by the church here to grab myself a sandwich. I'm about two steps from the door, and the door comes flying open, and some guy comes walking out rather huffy and quickly. I don't know what it's about, but I walk in, and everyone that's waiting for their sandwich is staring at the door, staring at me now. They're all shaking their heads. And I heard somebody say something about a mask. And then I heard a mom turn to her kid and say something along the lines of, make sure you always treat staff well. That's what I heard and what I saw. That's the situation. Now, I missed what happened, but I observed evidence that something happened that <laughs> I just missed. So this leads to the second question, what do you think? Because in this moment, we start to interpret what we observed. 
We start to interpret what we've observed. And we begin to add meaning to what we've observed. We start to create a story in our own mind of what we've seen and what we've heard, what we've observed. Now, this is where we add meaning. We start to create this story. And you could assume, probably as I did, that what went down before I walked in there is this guy didn't want to wear a mask. And, and he was asked to put one on and he refused. And he said something mean to the staff in response. And, and it led to like a whole thing. And then he stormed out. It's a logical story from the bit of information I gathered. But it leads to our third question we have to consider. How do you feel? This is talking about the emotional, physiological responses to a situation that can happen. And the emotions don't have to get complex. You can really break your emotions down to simple like this. Mad, sad, glad, bad. Everything kind of follows those categories. Mad, sad, glad, bad are the categories we can talk about. But there's physiological responses to each of these as well. For example, if you're mad, your you face might turn red and you might yell. If you're sad, you might cry. If you feel bad, you might feel sick to your stomach. Well, how did I feel in this situation? I can tell you that I didn't feel like I was in the mood to be slow to listen and quick. You know, I, w- I was more in the mood to be uh, you know, slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to get angry because I had these scenarios, these stories going through my mind is if I was there a little earlier about how I would have corrected this guy from treating this employee in this fashion. You see, these emotions start to well up when we think about what do we experience, what do we think, and what do we feel. These emotions start to well up and we start to play through scenarios of what I would have done if I could do it over again. Anyone ever done that? Oh, I would have had the right thing to say if I could go back five minutes. Oh, I would have done this if I was there. These, these emotions. And, and here's what happens is when we find ourselves in these stressful encounters where the emotions start to get involved, that's where it starts to go off the rails. That's where we go off the rails. Because whether it's in your situation or the one that I'm, I'm just using as an example here, I don't know the whole story. I don't know everything that went down. Even if I was there, I don't know the history of each of the people involved. I don't know the whole story. What am I doing? I'm just shooting from the hip. And when we're shooting from the hip, our weapons are loaded with emotion. They're just simply loaded with emotion. And that influences the fourth question of what do I want? How am I going to define the appropriate outcome in this situation? Maybe it's not something that's inappropriate that I want. Maybe I want an apology. Maybe, Maybe I just want to seek peace in a situation. But other times... We want other things. Sometimes we want somebody to admit that we were right and that they were wrong. Sometimes we want justice is where we find ourselves. And what we want isn't always, you know, good or bad. It's hard to differentiate between those at times. And so we can ask a follow-up question to this one to determine the appropriateness of what we want. And the question is this. When I consider what I want, who does it honor? Who does it honor? Because if what I want only honors me, I'm probably guilty of right fighting. I just want to be right. That's my objective. What I want, I just want to be right. Whether I am or not, I just want to be right. And if it only honors me, I may be guilty of right fighting. And it doesn't show value to the other. Sometimes what we want only shows value to the other. And that's not healthy. It can seem very noble, but that's actually not healthy either. Because if it only shows value to the other person and doesn't show value to myself, I'm actually opening myself up to be abused in that situation. But there's a third option. Is that what if it is honoring to God? What if we were to ask, go through this process, and at the end of it, before we arrive at our final conclusion of what we want, if we're asked the question, is it honoring to God? 
Is it in keeping with the righteousness he wants to create in me, as it says in, in James 1? Is it in keeping with the new life I have in Christ? Is it in keeping with the clothes I'm, I'm told to put on in Colossians 3? What if it's honoring to God? Well, if it's honoring to God, there's a very good chance it's going to be honoring to me and to others as well, if it's honoring to him. And it will be in keeping with the new life that he's trying to shape in us and have shaped through us. Does that make sense? I hope you get a sense of how a process like this can actually lead to fueling life in our relationships rather than having conflict that drains life from our relationships. Now, before we wrap up on this, I want to show you an example of this from the early church. Uh, And there's this incredible, and not that they had the cube back then, it, it, it just beautifully kind of pulls these pieces together. And from the early church, there's this moment where there's... um, Excuse me. There is this moment of anger, impossible division that could have gotten out of control. And they actually followed a, a process very similar to one that we've just talked about here. And it's found in Acts chapter 15. If you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, you can turn to Acts 15 or you can turn in your pew Bibles to page 896. And, and in this story, what we find is there's a dispute that's come up in the church in Antioch where some legalists have come down and they're saying that Christians must follow the Jewish traditions. Now, Paul and Barnabas, who are in this church in Antioch at this point, uh, don't agree. And, and, and they, they don't think that this is actually the proper teaching. And so the church in Antioch, after they have this discussion, they decide to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to gain clarification from this issue from Jesus' closest followers and to see what they say about the matter. Now, as I read through this, I'm going to kind of read through chunks of it and, and call it certain things so you can notice aspects of the cube and aspects of James 1 that's in, in effect here. And, and we'll start off, to start in, J, in Acts chapter 15, reading the first few verses. And we see here, the first thing that happens is everyone takes time to listen to each other before they share what they think. So starting in verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers there, unless, the, unless you are circumcised... According to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about this question. Jumping down to verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they had reported everything. So they listened to them. They reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers, this is the other side of the the. Uh, problem now. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said that Gentiles must be circumcised and required everything according to the law of Moses. So, so far they're just taking time to gather the facts. Just listen to each other, to gather the facts. And as we continue in verse 6, we see that the apostles consider the question and they consider, well, what do we think about this? And, and even more so, what does God think about this? So what do we think about this? From verse 6 through verse 11. The apostles and the elders then met together to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows hearts, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between them and us, and he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe, we think, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. 
Now, we're going to jump down a little bit further here. So we can see that they've listened to each other now. They've both presented their sides of the equation. They've shared what they thought. And now as we continue down at verse 19, so Peter has spoken for a moment, and James will get up and speak. But then as James continues, he moves from just echoing some of the things that Peter says to sharing what he's feeling. He actually shares a concern that he has about this. He says, here's what I feel about these thoughts we have. Verse 19, James continues, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's concerned that, that by adding these additional barriers, these additional hurdles they have to get to the gospel, it's going to be the message. This is, these are thoughts that come from the feelings he has about this. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food. He's worried about this conflict existing and worried about dividing the church, and so his concern is further echoed. Instead of allowing this to happen, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from food, polluted by idols, and he goes on about what the letter should include. Um, right down to verse 21. So we get to the next part here in verse uh, 22. They decide what they want. They now decide what they want. They want to send a letter, and they want to send rep to go deliver this to resolve the issue. Starting in verse 22 to 23. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided what they wanted. They decided to choose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, who's called and Silas, and the men were the leaders and the believers, they sent the following letter. So we went through these four stages. You can kind of see how they exist within there. But here's the interesting thing, is we have a really quick look at the letter they sent. The letter they sent actually follows the four steps as well. So we see this in verse 24. Here's the letter they sent in verse 24. They shared what they observed. We have heard, we observed, and we heard with our own ears that some went out from us without authorization and disturbed you. Troubling your minds with what they said. That's what we observed. Here's what we think about it in verse 25. We all agree to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, men who have risked their lives in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Then they share what they feel. What they feel was good for God and for his people. Verse 23, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to burden you with this. We don't want to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Here's what we want. Verse 24, or verse 29, sorry. Here's what we want. You are to abstain from food practiced to idols and the blood and the meat and strangled animals and from sexual immorality, and you will do well to avoid these things. So we're not going to unpack the whole message behind what they wanted, but can you see the model there? This is what we observed. This is what we think about it. This is what we feel about it. This is what we want. And we want this for you because it is honoring to God. It's honoring to us and it's honoring to you. And it's this great demonstration of how being quick to listen and slow to speak can allow us to be slow to become angry. And the result that this had was not division within the church, But by applying a model along this line, they were able to preserve unity of the body under the guidance of Jesus Christ. It's a great example. Now, the same is possible in our lives. That God has created us for life and community. And the way we allow our new life in Christ to be experienced through us has the power to either drain life or to fuel new life in us. The reality is, folks, there will always be opportunities for conflict and division. It's always going to be around. Recently, it seems like it has been ramping up more than ever. But when it comes to the role that each of us has an opportunity to play 
in our interpersonal relationships, remember these principles, that our relationships with others are an extension of our relationship with Christ. Therefore, strive to take off the attitudes and the behaviors that are consistent with that new life. And in place of them, put on the virtues that allow us to imitate the virtues of Christ that can fuel new life within us. And then remember the wisdom of mom? What did mom say? You got two what? Ears and you got one mouth. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. And if we can live this out, I, I honestly truly believe that if we can live this out in our community here locally in, in the church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, that we can be a great witness to the world of marriages that are healthy and happy and living in these grace-rich environments, that we can have friendships that are building people up and sharpening people, providing joy, providing encouragement, that we can have a church where we not only are brought together under the one spirit, the one hope, the one Lord, the one faith, the one God, but also beautifully reveal that unity to the world around us, that that would be the witness we can put forward. Now, as the worship team comes to join me on the platform here and we, we wrap up the message today, I just want to let you know that if you need any help, if you're in a situation where you think you would need another voice to come speak in, any pastoral counseling, please know that we are here to, to come alongside you and to help you with that. Feel free to contact me, to, to contact Pastor Andrew for us to help with that. It, it may be in the area of, of, of marital challenge, a challenge with children, it may be a challenge with conflict with another person, with, with trying to discern where God is leading you for the future. It's also, in addition to that, on a, on a happier side, uh, Nadine and I are starting pre-marriage counseling again this year. For, for We've got a few people signed up that we're going to be marrying in the coming months. And, and if there's others who want to be part of pre-marriage counseling too, just let us know, and we'll add you to the group for that as well. But allow us to come alongside you, to help equip you and to strengthen you and to build you so that we can experience new life in the context of our relationships. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've created us to live in community, that you've invited us to live in the context of relationship. Lord, we, we know that sometimes that's hard, that there are strained relationships that exist in our lives, and, and I know they exist within this room, Lord. It's just the nature of being human in this life. But I pray, Lord, that we would come to press deeper into relationship with you and that through pressing deeper into that, that we'd experience more life in you that we can use as the source of bringing healing and strength and fueling the life in our relationships with one another. Not just so that we can enjoy the beauty of the relationships you've created us to have, but also, Lord, so that we may be witnesses to the world of the difference that Jesus makes.